0: This is Time and Other Thieves, Reflections on Another Month of Living and Learning. I'm Sarah B., and I've decided to incorporate a bell into the program. I've come to really appreciate the ringing bell as a signal that something is starting or something is coming to an end, something important. Usually, in my experience, that something is meditation. But I'd argue that this show is a kind of meditation, and I'd argue that it's important. To me, if no one else, it's important in as much as it meets a need, that need being to share my thoughts, feelings, and experiences with people in a way that involves lots of writing and reading out loud. Today I'm going to talk a little more about a book called The Consolations of Philosophy by Alain de Baton, the first half of which I discussed last month. In that episode, I focused on some things that Seneca had to say about frustration and what Michel de Montaigne said about inadequacy, particularly what he said about physical inadequacy, which includes sickness and other ailments, which I myself had been dealing with and which I've continued to deal with in new ways that I will not provide any details on. I will say that it's nothing terribly serious, as far as I know, and that my body's stubborn refusal to do right has been a big spiritual challenge for me. Having my own body be a near constant source of worry has made me realize how much I worry in general. It has made even more apparent the existential angst and fear that's always humming in the background of my being, and fear of sickness and infection are especially loud. I was having lunch with a friend at Asheville Pizza and Brewing a couple weeks ago, and as I was putting my dish in the busing tub, my brain started setting off germ alarms. Oddly enough, at that unassuming moment, I had an epiphany. Life is dangerous. There's no end to the things we can worry about. So then worry must become a choice, or must be seen, reframed, as something that we choose to engage in because that's exactly what it is. Granted, there are times when worry is helpful because it makes us act, and such actions can prevent or lessen future hardship, but I'd wager that most worry does not fall into this helpful category, like my worry about getting sick from the dirty dish tub at a restaurant. Aside from refusing to clean up after myself or to ever eat at a restaurant again, I do it so rarely as is, There's no action I can take to assuage that worry, and therefore that worry is not worth my attention and energy. So my new mantra is, fuck your worry. It's basically a bully in your head, if you think about it. But back to life being dangerous. Accepting this fact feels liberating. We put so much emphasis on safety in this culture. Stay safe became our goodbye refrain during the pandemic, which annoyed me then and annoys me now whenever I hear it. Similar to the phrase, be well, stay safe, annoys me because it seems to imply that I have total control over my safety and that said safety should be a constant permanent state. I cannot stay safe any more than I can be well. Yes, I have some control over my wellness I try to eat healthful foods and move my body every day and get enough rest and socialization and creative stimulation and all that, but I still catch colds and deal with constipation and get weird infections. My next-door neighbor, Rob, always says, be good, as part of his goodbye, which I really like because it's just plain likable, especially with his eastern North Carolina accent, and because I do have control, total and complete control, over my goodness. As Marcus Aurelius said, and I paraphrase, nothing that happens to you can or should prevent you from being good, from behaving ethically and honoring your values. And of course we all have some control over our safety, but the bottom line is that life is dangerous and we cannot stay safe all the time. Telling anyone to do so is comparable to telling a combat soldier fighting on the Western Front in the First World War to do so. Absurd. So thanks to that tub of strangers' dirty dishes, I have decided to approach life with the attitude of a combat soldier. There's a good chance something terrible will happen to me. I'm going to proceed anyway, come what may. If Friedrich Nietzsche had his druthers, instead of saying, stay safe, to each other, we'd say, live dangerously. (laughs) He actually did say that. Here's the full quote as referenced by Alain de Botton in the Consolations of Philosophy. The secret for harvesting from existence the greatest fruitfulness and the greatest enjoyment is to live dangerously. Build your cities on the slopes of Vesuvius. Mount Vesuvius had actually erupted three years prior, in 1872. Nietzsche's words are reminiscent of something one of his favorite philosophers, Stendhal, said, If you refuse to let your suffering lie upon you even for an hour, and if you constantly try to prevent and forestall all possible distress way ahead of time, if you experience suffering and displeasure as evil, hateful, worthy of annihilation, and as a defect of existence, then it is clear that you harbor in your heart the religion of comfortableness. How little you know of human happiness, you comfortable people. For happiness and unhappiness are sisters and even twins that either grow up together or, as in your case, remain small together. That quote comes from Stendhal's book De L'Amour, or On Love. This idea of happiness being inseparable from discomfort or even outright pain calls to mind another philosopher that de Botton addresses in his book, Arthur Schopenhauer. He said, There is only one inborn error, and that is the notion that we exist in order to be happy. So long as we persist in this inborn error, the world seems to us full of contradictions. For at every step, in great things and small, we are bound to experience that the world and life are certainly not arranged for the purpose of maintaining a happy existence. Schopenhauer also asserted that, Much would have been gained if, through timely advice and instruction, young people could have had eradicated from their minds the erroneous notion that the world has a great deal to offer them. I had never read any Schopenhauer prior to coming across de book in the Leicester Library, and upon finally doing so, I found myself laughing in heartfelt appreciation of his surly sentiments, like this one. We can regard our life as a uselessly disturbing episode in the blissful repose of nothingness. Human existence must be a kind of error. It is bad today, and every day it will get worse, until the worst of all happens. As I've mentioned before, including in last month's episode in quoting Seneca, I owe my life to philosophy, and that is the least of my obligations to it. I like it when people disparage life sometimes. Louis C.K. does it brilliantly in his stand-up special titled Louis C.K. 2017 when arguing that abortion should be legal because life isn't that important anyway. It's not an attitude I adopt all the time, of course, because life is also wonderful and amazing, but that's definitely not all life is, and clearly not all it's supposed to be, and I think it's important to acknowledge its awfulness from time to time. In fact, I think it's odd that Schopenhauer would refer to death, assuming that is what he's referring to, as, quote, the worst of all. Seems like he should welcome death, given his enduring belief that human existence is some kind of error and that life is a uselessly disturbing episode in the blissful repose of nothingness. But that's okay, Arthur. You can contradict yourself. You are large. You contain multitudes. I also got a kick out of what Schopenhauer had to say about noise. I talked about noise a few episodes back in March when reflecting on the essay on noise by Seneca. The gist of that essay is if you can live somewhere that's quiet, you probably should. But if you can't, you shouldn't let noise distract you from your purpose, whatever that might be at a given time. You should not blame noisy surroundings for your own noisy brain. No amount of peace and quiet without can create the ultimate peace and quiet within. All of the noises Seneca mentions in his essay are human-made, but he never disparages humans for making them. Schopenhauer, on the other hand, says, I have for a long time been of the opinion that the quantity of noise anyone can comfortably endure is in inverse proportion to his mental powers. In other words, the less external noise affects you, the less intelligent you must be. This notion seems in opposition to Seneca's primary argument. I'd argue that the relationship between noise endurance and intelligence varies from person to person according to circumstance. The soldier under fire, for instance, who is able to maintain the focus needed to defuse a bomb certainly displays an impressive kind of intelligence And the music enthusiast standing close to a speaker at a concert, letting the sound waves permeate his veins and transport him to a different state of consciousness, is also displaying a certain intelligence. But then there are noises like those little TVs with the big sound at gas stations, and the sounds of traffic and road construction and sirens and radios, and are banging and clanging around noises that many of us have grown accustomed to because we aren't really paying attention to our experience. And that is definitely not intelligent. Schopenhauer says, The man who habitually slams doors instead of shutting them with the hand is not merely ill-mannered, but also coarse and narrow-minded. We shall be quite civilized only when it is no longer anyone's right to cut through the consciousness of every thinking being by means of whistling, howling, bellowing, hammering, whip-cracking, and so on. On this matter, I stand squarely in Schopenhauer's court. And to his list of noisy behaviors that no civilized society should tolerate, I'd like to add setting off fireworks. I'm actually writing this portion of the script on July 4th, a Tuesday, and my neighbors have been setting off fireworks nightly since Saturday. Last night's were the worst, by far. They just went on and on. I've said it before, but it bears repeating. Why on earth is it okay to set off multiple explosions after 10 p.m., not to mention midnight? I don't care if you're celebrating. It is insanely rude, unkind, ignorant behavior. But it's also ignorant of me to harbor any expectations of others. Why should anyone behave as I think they should? Freud said that of the three primary difficulties facing man, his own body and its failings, the external elements, and other people, it is other people that challenge us the most. And Nietzsche would argue that to expect other people to never challenge us is much like objecting to any state of distress or discomfort, to see it as something to be abolished. He called this attitude, quote, the supreme idiocy. In a general sense, a real disaster in its consequences. Almost as stupid as the will to abolish bad weather. I've realized anew this week that the only thing I really have control over is my own outlook. My dog Tina had her first dental cleaning on July 3rd, which meant she'd be anesthetized, which, in my mind, meant that she could die. I wasn't actually, surprisingly, that worried, would die, but it was certainly a recurring thought, and I was tempted to pray for her life and safety. But then I realized that I'd be better off praying for my own strength, for my ability to handle, with at least some modicum of expertise, anything that happens. Give me strength, give me peace, give me patience, etc. Feels a lot more empowering than let such and such a thing outside of me happen in a particular way. That being said, and here's where my contradictions and multitudes come in, I've also recently become fascinated by the medicine Buddha and the mantra associated with that being, not a deity per se, but as Lama Surya Das says in Awakening the Buddha Within, a numinous form, an archetype, a personification of healing power. From the Tibetan Buddhism tradition, A couple of people in my sangha have mentioned the medicine Buddha over the past few months, and I finally looked into it a few days ago. This archetype has dark blue skin, blue being the color of healing, and is typically depicted as holding a bowl of healing nectars in his left hand and a medicine plant in his right. The mantra associated with him is Teata Om Bekensei, Bekensei, Maha Bekensei, runs a soha i've heard this mantra sung something like te ata bekanze maha bekanze runs a soha the two translations i found are quite different one reads, may the many sentient beings who are sick be freed from sickness soon, and may all the sicknesses of beings never arise again. The other, and probably more accurate, reads, hail, O healer, O healer, O great healer, O king of healing. I've printed out a color photo of the Medicine Buddha, a.k.a. by Sajia Guru and placed it in a frame on the lowest shelf of the bookcase that I always face while meditating, so whenever I want to invoke him for the sake of my own healing or someone else's, I can more easily bring his image to mind. An article in Lion's Roar magazine recommends visualizing healing blue lights and nectars emanating from the bowl in his lap, coming to the crown of your head and flowing down, filling your body, or that of the being for whom you are practicing, You can direct the lights and nectars to specific parts of the body, but there is such an abundance of them, they will fill your whole being anyway. Prior to chanting the Medicine Buddha mantra, Lion's Roar recommends saying the following, By this practice of Medicine Buddha, may I, or the being for whom I am practicing, be purified of all disease, pain, and suffering, and enjoy complete and perfect enlightenment to lead all other beings to this same state. After chanting, it's recommended to conclude with, by this practice of medicine Buddha, may I, or the being for whom I am practicing, and all beings be free from pain, disease, and suffering, and quickly achieve complete and perfect enlightenment. Do I really believe that chanting some words in another language and imagining a blue-skinned figure with a bowl of nectar in one hand and a plant in the other will heal my or other people's sickness? Not completely. But I believe it's helpful to practice sitting with that kind of intention, and that bringing sounds, especially singing, which itself calms the nervous system, and images into the mix activates different parts of the brain to make the practice more powerful. And I believe in energy. And I absolutely believe that chanting the same thing over and over for minutes on end definitely changes one's energy in a good way. And that good energy will emanate and positively impact the people who come into contact with it. Practicing with the Medicine Buddha Mantra is similar to another Tibetan Buddhist practice called Tonglen, or giving and receiving, which entails inhaling suffering, either your own or someone else's or both, and exhaling relief or healing. But a significant difference between the two, at least according to Pema Chodron, is that Tong Lin is done to change someone's state of mind, not to heal their physical body. Inhaling, you visualize a thick black smoke filling your lungs and being burned up in the furnace of your heart. Here, I'm reminded of Joanna Newsom's incredible song, Monkey and Bear. My heart is a furnace full of love that's just and earnest. Exhaling, you visualize the opposite of thick black smoke. I like to picture a liquid glittery substance because I am a sucker for glitter. Aside from finishing the Consolations of Philosophy, I also, since the last episode, finished reading Andre Agassi's autobiography, ghost-written by J.R. Moringer, titled Open. I highly recommend it for people who are interested in ghostwriting, which is why I read it, or, of course, for people who are interested in tennis. I have since started reading a slender volume called Zen Spirit to Christian Spirit, The Place of Zen in Christian Life by Robert F. Kennedy, and at the enthusiastic suggestion of my husband, a book about the sinking of the Lusitania, titled Dead Wake by Eric Larson. I am farther into the former than the latter, and its content is more fitting for this podcast, so I'll tell you a bit about it. I checked Zen Spirit, Christian Spirit out of the Urban Dharma Library, which is a wonderful resource for anyone interested in spiritual, especially Buddhist, texts and I get the impression that it's largely untapped. If you haven't checked out Urban Dharma in West Asheville, I highly recommend you do. The author of Zen Spirit, Christian Spirit, Robert E. Kennedy, is an American Jesuit priest, again with the Jesuits, I love the Jesuits, professor of theology, psychoanalyst, and Zen Roshi in the White Plum Lineage. Born in 1933 and currently 90 years old, Kennedy joined the Jesuits, a religious order of the Catholic Church, in 1951 and became a priest in 1965. In the 70s, he studied in Japan under Yamada Koan, leader of the Sanbo Kyodan lineage of Zen Buddhism. According to Wikipedia, Kennedy went on to study Zen with Yamada Roshi in Kamakura, Japan, Mezumi Roshi in Los Angeles, and Bernard Glassman Roshi in New York City. Glassman Roshi installed Kennedy as a sensei or teacher in 1991 and conferred Inca, his final seal of approval, in 1997, making him a Roshi or master. I was naturally drawn to Kennedy's book because I'm interested in Buddhism and Christianity and love seeing how they can support each other. Also, I've been corresponding via actual handwritten letters with one of my aunts about why I ultimately find the most support in Buddhism, so I thought Kennedy's book could inform some of those letters, like what he says about the concept of original sin. Kennedy cites American Trappist monk, writer, theologian, mystic, poet, social activist, and scholar of comparative religion, Thomas Merton, whom I still haven't read, but I've got two of his books waiting for me, and I feel confident I'll start at least one of them before the year's end. Merton equated lack of self-knowledge to original sin. Quote, "...the tragedy is that our consciousness is totally alienated from the inmost ground of our identity, and in Christian mystical tradition, this inner split and alienation is the real meaning of original sin." That phrase, the inmost ground of our identity, reminds me of the ground of being, which is a phrase that's basically referring to God in a way that I love because it implies that God is in everything, including me, which means God is not separate from me, which is a notion that many Christian teachings seem to contradict. Zen reminds us, Kennedy writes, as do Meister Eckhart, Thomas Merton, and many other contemplatives, that the highest point of our Christian mysticism is reached not in the experience that I know God or that I love God, not in any I-thou experience, but in the experience that God lives in us. Therefore, self-knowledge is God-knowledge. The Buddha would agree. Go see for yourself, he always said. Don't take my or anyone else's word for it. My Sangha sells t-shirts that say, Inquire Within. But the self-knowledge that comes with such disciplined inquiry is not what many, perhaps most, self-proclaimed Christians would equate with God-knowledge. Kennedy references St. Basil in saying that anyone who says he knows God is perverted, in this case God being an entity separate from oneself. Kennedy continues to paraphrase Basil. Basil? Quote, not merely wrong-headed, but Perverted. He is so completely turned around and off track that he is a danger to himself and to those he teaches. And since we cannot know God as we might know another person, we cannot love God as we might love another person. Quote, When we are commanded to love God, we are commanded to love what we cannot think about or know or imagine. He quotes a book whose title I've been coming across a lot lately, A medieval work of Christian mysticism called The Cloud of Unknowing, which says, I forsake all that I can think and choose to love that which I cannot think. Kennedy also argues that we cannot know God's will or God's providence. We cannot even say that God is good. To say that is to project our own ideas of goodness onto God, and that is always fatal to our faith, he says. For indeed, when a disaster occurs, we may be scandalized that a good God would allow it. Kennedy bemoans organized religion's insistence on, quote, domesticating and dwarfing God to a controllable and lovable size. Due to its influence, he says, it is no wonder that our prayers can become a boring struggle to preserve images and analogies that do not serve a mature experience of faith. This brings me back to what I was saying earlier about prayer. To pray for a good outcome to something. Tina came through her teeth cleaning just fine, by the way. Is akin to asking God to behave the way you want in accordance to your notions of good and bad. To pray for strength, equanimity, peace, patience, etc. in any and all types of hardship, however, is basically to pray for maintaining contact with God the God within, or the kingdom of God, which Kennedy equates to the Zen notion of no self, that is, no separate and abiding self. He's basically saying that the Christian's kingdom of God is the same as the Buddhist's emptiness. I love that. And emptiness, by the way, is not the same as nothingness. Boundlessness might be a better way to think of it. Maybe I'll do an episode on the Heart Sutra soon. For now, though, I believe that's going to do it for this episode of Time and Other Thieves. I'm Sarah B., and I'll check back in with you next month, by which time I will have gone on a beach vacation with my family of origin to celebrate my dad's 70th birthday, and I'll be getting ready to go to my first-ever editing conference in Alexandria, Virginia. I might talk some more about the Kennedy book, and maybe I will have finally started reading some Thomas Merton. I'm going to leave you with... The bodhicitta aspiration may bodhicitta precious and sublime arise where it has not yet come to be and where it has arisen may it not decline but grow and flourish evermore and now as long as space endures as long as living beings remain may i too abide to dispel the misery of the world thanks so much for listening take care